Welcome to the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Do you like cooking, reading about food, or even just eating? Then this podcast is for you. My co-host Charlotte and I work in the food industry. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, meeting the people who make it all happen, and showing you what's going on. Together, we'll bring you an inside view from the food industry with our unique perspectives from our work behind the scenes in food creation and production. Every week, along with our special guests, we'll cover different foodie topics, from baking to growing your own, home cooking, outdoor cooking, and even booze. Our aim is to take a positive look at what the nation is cooking and eating right now. There's so much adaptation, galvanization, and collaboration across the entire food system at the moment. And we'll be talking to some very special guests about the changes in their world, professional and personal, about remodeling, rethinking, and innovating with so much turned upside down and sharing some unique perspectives from field to fork. We'll also consider what food will look like in the future, in the home and outside. This podcast is sponsored by Moorish Hummus, a tasty treat for when eating in is the new going out. Moorish produces a range of delicious dips, including smoked hummus and now new velvet hummus. Moorish is available in Sainsbury's, Ocado and many other stores. Every week, our lucky listeners will be in with the chance to win some delicious dips in our competition at the end of each show, along with some other exciting gifts. I'm Jules Waddell, founder of Moorish Hummus. Yes, there is a link. And I'm here with my co-host Charlotte, award-winning cookery, writer, teacher and chef. For more on us, check out lovemoorish.co.uk and charlottepike.co.uk. We'll also keep you updated on what shops are open when and for whom on our website pandemic-pantry.co.uk. So, it's time to pull up a chair at the table, sink into the sofa or relax into bed and get ready for the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. This week we'll be talking more about what the new world of eating out and shopping will look like. With restrictions lifting on where and how we can eat out, we'll be finding out what's happening behind the scenes as shops and restaurants are opening their doors after what feels like a very long period of downtime. Although, as we'll hear, it's been incredibly busy behind the scenes from the get-go. Finally, in case this is the first episode you've listened to, we do like to say up front that we know the audio quality of our content isn't perfect and occasionally contains the odd glitch. This is due to the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we and our guests are recording from home with less than optimal audio acoustics and the occasional Wi-Fi wobble. Finally, as always, we've loved receiving your questions about cooking during COVID and we'll have more on that later with Charlotte. So, Onto the show. Hi, Charlotte. How are you? Hello, Jules. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Yes, still staying well, which is always a great relief with everything going on around us. Still staying in. Not much has changed really. Again, week after week, I think we've, you know, we've just been quite cautious and staying in and keeping ourselves safe. I mean, we're going out for exercise as usual and I've been out a little bit more for running odd jobs, but it's been quite interesting. I've noticed going out and about for my daily bike rides tend to go for about an hour and a half around the Cotswold Water Park, which is really, really nice. But there are so many more people out socially, larger groups, having picnics, parties, barbecues. It feels quite different being out from sort of cycling down country lanes with no one, no one there at all. And going into town, I popped into uh, Swindon to do some, some jobs, which is 
not too far away and it was so busy you know the car parks are heaving huge queues it's quite regular to see maybe 50 plus people queuing to get into to shops which is really really interesting there's definitely a demand for people to get out shop and do things socially so there's a really different feel over the last week here but you know I'm just sort of keeping it simple staying at home and just trying to get on with things I don't know about you but I've been feeling a sort of real sense of urgency perhaps because I'm the sort of person I love a to-do list and when I could see everything locking down I thought right I have to get on with X, Y, and Z and all of these things that have been on my list for ages. I really like being organized, but I feel a bit stressed recently because I haven't managed to get through them all. So I've got this sort of like panic, (laughs) working panically, working through my to-do list, trying to get all of my lockdown jobs done whilst we're still in lockdown. So I don't know, but, you know, feeling that real pressure and stress from work and life at home is not good as well when you're used to kind of going out and you can manage it and you can come back and say, right, now it's, now it's my downtime. That's quite an interesting thing when you're at home a lot as well. So it's been a sort of funny mix really over the last few weeks. So how are things in your world? Yes, good, thank you. I did feel for you. I saw you were doing your filing over the weekend and <laughs> a million tea receipts that you'd been putting off and you normally have help with it, which I completely understand. It is not my strong point. But at the moment, we have to do everything. If we want it done, we have to do it ourselves. Yes. So yes, I was feeling your pain, but how satisfying when I saw the big wadge of receipts that you'd sorted out and tick that job off the list with mm. a big fat tick. So I completely get it. Yeah, what you're saying about there is no sort of going away from home and coming back and even that sort of refreshment of scenery for your brain. Having worked from home for many years now, I am really feeling the fact that I am working from home, living at home, never going anywhere, not getting an overnight business trip at all. And the fact that there hasn't been one and there won't be one, really, really feeling that. So actually last night I'd said to my husband, we'd like to have a couple of nights away from our darling children that we (laughs) (laughs) with. A lot more than normal, obviously. And, you know, it has real pluses that. And we've all really, I would almost say, got to know each other better because you just Mm. don't normally spend that much time together and and learning with them for the schoolwork and literally doing everything with them, being with them, sport, cooking, relaxing, whatever. It is all with the children, which really is not what you would normally do. Much as there's been loveliness about that, we would definitely like to get away I think you come back a better person, whether you're getting away from a partner or with a partner or getting away from from your children and just coming back, having had that wee space in your head, just some downtime and and time to replenish. So anyway, I was saying to my husband, we definitely need a couple of nights away, but I also need, I'm the kind of person, I'm an extrovert, I get my energy from other people, but I also need some solitary time. I really do. And more so as I've got older, I I really like my own company. I think it's because I get so little of it that you appreciate it and you crave it. So I have booked two nights in Cornwall in a remote place. It's not a retreat, although my daughter was saying, oh, it's a retreat for you, mummy. It's not an official retreat setting, but it's a little remote place. Just me on the beach, going to swim, you know, two nights, swim in the morning or swim all day, read books two days and that will be like a fortnight in 
somewhere exotic would have been in the past because it's all you can get and I'll take it. And I think, you know, we don't know if lockdown will happen and then all those plans will be spoilt or the accommodation I was looking at, cancellation policies, because I think they just want to get the business in and they hope that people don't have to cancel, but they don't want to put you off by saying you can't cancel. So cancellation is very much on the agenda, but I'm hoping it won't happen. I'm going at the end of July, two nights. And I said to my husband last night, the mental health benefits for me of the feeling of even having something to look forward to is massive. It's going to cost very little. It's only an hour's drive away, but it's a place that we wouldn't normally go to. It's in Cornwall rather than where we live in Devon. So that feeling of doing something refreshing and different and somewhere else and rest and respite two nights. Mm. My goodness, I really do feel like I've won the lottery. It's so nice to have something to look forward to. So that is my exciting news. Amazing. I think we've all been living with some sort of stress with it all, whether it's the stress of lost income or you know, having to rethink your work or homeschooling or just trying to save a business or whatever's going on, that we've just had so much going on. We all need a break, don't we? But then when I have a holiday, when we have a holiday, for example, we went away just before Christmas and we had a lovely sunny tropical holiday for two weeks and you go away for two weeks together and you think a whole fortnight together that was amazing and it was just unthinkable before to have so much time together as a couple as a family never ever have that again ever no absolutely not and we love travel and the kids had just got to an age where we could go overseas and we'd had one really big exciting holiday last year and my son was saying yesterday you know are we going to have one again and I'm saying well definitely yes you know that's really what daddy and I would like to do with you guys but I just can't tell you where or when and that's not great when you're 12 and want to know tomorrow where am I going and when and and all the details but we just don't know just have to wait and see and that's all all new but let's talk about shopping so you said you went out in swindon and we'll we'll talk about that through the conversations we have with our fantastic guests in this episode but very quickly what's it been like for you going out and about and seeing the shopping environment where you are yeah well i'm still visiting the shops roughly once a week to do my food shopping again i'm still not managing to get my slots online So I'm still shopping and I tend to go to about three different places minimum each week because I like different things from different places. And I have to say, I, you know, I had to put that aside back in March and April when, you know, options were really limited. So I am doing about, I'm going to about three different places each week. I have been doing a little bit of sort of non-food shopping as well. Most of that has been online. The shops I have visited have been DIY shops because we're doing a renovation project here. So that's one of the reasons I've been out. But non-food stuff such as clothing, things for the house, things for the garden, I have been buying online. I don't particularly enjoy shopping anyway. I tend to shop out of necessity. And I've feel quite stressed actually thinking about that as an experience so I'm going to be quite measured in what I do over the next few weeks so what about you where have you been going what you've been doing yeah I'm the same and it's particularly with the recent news about Leicester so it looks Mm. you know that I heard on the radio this morning that Leicester is re-implementing some lockdown measures because of the reverse in the, the trend for improvement in the picture and I think 
you know, they were saying on the radio that that will carry on in, in all sorts of places, geographically chosen areas that when they look at the numbers, they say, right, you need to implement these measures again. And it will go on and on and off and on in various places until there's a vaccine or something changes or the virus, you know, diminishes to the point where it's it's then out of the population, neither of which are going to happen soon. So my view is still, unless I really need it, how much do I need new clothes? Well, I don't. I'm not a big clothes shopper either, but I might buy one or two new t-shirts or something or a new pair of flip-flops for the summer. Is that worth it? I don't think so. And, you know, coming back to a house with children and my son now goes and has a sleepover at his grandma's occasionally. And we've said, you know, we're not going anywhere. She's not going anywhere. So between us, the chances are very, very slim. But as soon as you start going out and mixing with, you know, hundreds of other people in, in big retail environments and they're touching things and you're in an enclosed space, I'm just not that comfortable. Not yet. Not yet. I think if it's a, a place where everything is really well controlled and well managed, then that's a better option, but it would still have to be quite a necessity. And I was reading something in one of my industry papers yesterday about the supermarkets are really trying to tread a fine line between the signage being super clear, so the black and yellow yellow hazard tape, but that's also that's quite stress inducing in the human system because it's like a warning warning you know this is not normal and of course it isn't but is that the environment that you want to spend much time in no and nor should you want to for longer than you need to it's all still i think very much being thought through in terms of what shops need to do what measures they need to take how they communicate their messages everybody still sort of feels like they're dancing around each other and oh don't come too near me and oh you touched that thing you're standing behind me i'm just trying to look on a shelf it's all very kind of angsty and it's not a very joyous environment so yes i think unless i really need things i won't be shopping for pleasure for quite some Mm. time Yeah. And we mentioned eating out last week. I know that there's going to be a few changes over the coming weeks. For example, Mitch Tonks, who we spoke to in episode one, his restaurant in Plymouth is reopening outdoors soon. Do you think when that sort of thing happens, you're try and venture out a bit more for food yeah and actually I saw last night my husband showed me an article in the Telegraph that Xanthi Clay had written talking about sourcing your own fish and seafood yes Mm. and Mitch is going to be opening a fishmongers in Brixham which I'm very excited about because that's 10 minutes down the road but I think yeah there's there's a couple of places so I like to go out with the girls every now and again my local friends and we've talked about are we all comfortable going and sitting somewhere and and having a meal and and some drinks and I think we've come to the agreement that we'd be happy to go and sit somewhere outside weather permitting but not yet sit inside that's another step maybe just psychologically what about you I'll probably first one of the first places I'll I'll go is down to Bristol because Bristol I think the food seems really really interesting. I was really interested I heard very recently Freddie Bird who we spoke to in our episode six I think it was he is now opening his restaurant Little French again in the open air and taking over a space adjacent so he's still going to be doing his shop that he talked about and dining outdoors so I think I'll probably go to Bristol but I think it'll be a few weeks or so 
Let's hear from our guests then this week. So we are following the theme of restaurant reopening and shops reopening. We've got two absolutely brilliant guests. We've got Ruth Watson, who listeners might remember as the original hotel inspector on UK TV. And we've also got the CEO of Fortnum & Mason, Ewan Venters, to tell us what's been going on there and what to expect in store. So let's get on with the show and hear what Ruth has to say. Ruth Watson is a food writer, television presenter, restaurateur, hospitality industry expert and former hotelier. Ruth and her husband bought Hintlesham Hall in Suffolk in the early 1980s, which they transformed from a restaurant to a 33-bedroom hotel with a golf course. Delia Smith and her husband Michael visited Hintlesham Hall and asked Ruth to contribute to their Sainsbury's magazine, having enjoyed reading her guest newsletters. This launched her food writing career. Ruth has written three cookery books and won two Glenfiddich Awards for her writing. After Hintlesham Hall came the Fox and Goose at Fressingfield and the Crown and Castle Hotel in Orford. Ruth is well known for presenting TV series The Hotel Inspector and Country House Rescue and even has an honorary doctorate for her services to hospitality. Ruth is the co-proprietor of Watson and Walpole, a new and yet to open neighbourhood Italian restaurant in Framlingham in Suffolk. Ruth Watson, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us, Ruth. Gosh, lots to write about in the intro. <laughs> I, I hadn't actually realised I'd done quite that much. It's a bit alarming. <laughs> it's just incredible. It's incredible. It really shows is. Shows my age. Shows my age. I've been around the clock. Somebody said to me the other day, a journalist from the East Anglian said, you've been doing this quite a long time. And I thought, yeah, nearly 40 years. Terrible. Wow. That's just amazing. And in your decades of experience in hospitality, this year has been, I hate to use the word unprecedented, but it has been extraordinary. Perhaps you might like to tell us a little bit about what's been going on for you and your new business. What's the impact been on your business plans? Well, in some ways it couldn't have been worse, but in some ways we were blessed. We were actually going to open 10 days after lockdown. So everything was geared towards that. Staff had been employed. We were waiting for the final touches for the restaurant fitting out, et cetera, et cetera. And on that Sunday night, suddenly it all came to a crashing close. Now, in some ways it was good because I think it could have been even worse if we'd been going, say, two months, hadn't properly established ourselves and then had had to close for months and months and months. But in other respects... It was devastating because we spent an awful lot of money on getting this restaurant out and had been hoping to trade and get some income and pay our staff wages and all those things. So, yes, crazy. But I have to say that in comparison with the big boys, you know, with multiple restaurants in London sites and things like that, city centres, ours has probably been quite mild in comparison. I mean, it looks, from the photos I've seen, absolutely beautiful. So smart. So it's all kitted out. And are you ready to go as soon as you're allowed, you get the green light? Well, pretty much. Not in Bali because we're waiting for the EPOS system and the training on it. And we've got to do some staff training and the kitchen's got to be commissioned. So we've now set a hopeful date of the 22nd of July, depending on what happens this coming week. But... We're more or less there. And yes, we're thrilled. It's the first time I've had the 
opportunity to do a restaurant from scratch in every way I want to do it because we've either inherited, bought things, had to make do or whatever. So that's why it's cost so much. So it's been wonderful to be able to say, this is how we would like to do it. And this is what we want to sell. And this is the kind of food, you know, and without having, at least at the moment, to compromise. Of course, if we're six weeks in and everyone hates the menu, (laughs) we'll be changing it. But right now, it feels very kind of shiny and bright and lovely. Amazing. Well, with your food, I I doubt that could ever happen. What are you thinking? So neighbourhood... Italian food what is your plan well in fact it was my niece who did the graphics and she came up with the neighborhood Italian which we absolutely loved because what we wanted to try and suggest was that it wasn't a cafe it is a restaurant but that it wasn't stuffy and got up and you know you had to be on your best behavior and all that kind of stuff because I hate those kind of eating places so we like the idea that it will be casual and relaxed but really properly run and very smooth I hope the service etc but we're not doing pizzas everyone keeps asking that we have a wood-fired oven which we'll be using for roasting fish meats and veg we might do the odd pizza as part of the menu but we're not a pizza parlor it's a proper Italian restaurant it's not specific to one region because you know we're not the wonderful Russell Norman and Polpo. So we do roam round Italy, but within each region, each dish, we are very authentic. I don't know whether you can be very authentic. It's a little, little bit like being unique. You can only be unique. You can't be quite unique. But anyway, we're trying to do everything extremely well. The only thing I'd say is that where we can buy food from this country rather than abroad, we're doing so for all the reasons you can imagine, not least the cost now of importing, but cobbling cured, for example, are providing all the salumi, Lavastoke Park, we're getting the buffalo mozzarella and burrata, and they do buffalo milk as well, which we'll use on an ice cream, we're making our own ice creams. So anywhere we can buy good food here, which is as good as Italian, then we will. But obviously things like violoni nano, rice and olive oil, they're coming from Italy. Oh my gosh, that sounds absolutely divine. And the sort of restaurant I just feel as though it ought to be in every town. Wouldn't it be nice? One of of the really, really nice things, and I've loved it, is how many people have said, and it's so strange, but it's gorgeous, it's very encouraging, how many people have stopped me on the street in Framlingham and said, Framlingham, so lucky to have you. And I've never had that before. And it's just really nice because, yeah, there isn't a lot. There's a few very nice pubs and things, but... It's a long way to get to a good restaurant in Suffolk. They're either on the coast, Barry Snevin's my favourite restaurant, Pea Porridge in Suffolk. But, you know, they're not, we're not have a mugger with proper restaurants. Yeah. It's, nice, it's nice to think that you're already getting the vibe of support from the community. And I think we were talking to Tom Parker Bowles earlier. It's about everybody is in this together and the public will be supporting the restaurants and the restaurants are supporting the suppliers and producers and although you're yet to open you're already feeling the love is that right we are feeling the love from people in the town but there's no doubt about it you said suppliers and producers 
all really happy and raring to go, want to talk, want to play, you know, want you to place the orders. And we have done. In fact, we've got a barn stocked with £10,000 worth of wine that hasn't gone anywhere, apart from oh, down wow. my husband's throat occasionally. Um, <laughs> um, now, we've got huge stocks of wine that we've been hoarding. And it's really, Tom's completely right. We are all in this together. And whatever kind of business you are, I think everyone's giving everyone slack about the imperfections that we now have. And one of the things that we were just talking about earlier, all the health and safety precautions and screens and gloves and all you know, stuff we all know about. And we were just saying that we were talking about lunchtime when we're children are welcome and dogs, not in the evening, either of them, because the evening's for grown-ups. but lunchtime's fine. And then we were talking about pushchairs. And I said, well, we won't be allowed to have pushchairs in because if we can't lay a table in case somebody sneezes all over it, we can't have a pushchair either in the room. And it's very weird because normally you'd get a bit kind of apprehensive about saying to anyone, sorry, we can't have pushchairs, but actually we know that everyone will understand. And that kind of understanding, I think, will actually bring us all closer together. I hope it will. I think restaurants have had a bit of a free run, especially in London, and we know they've all, and many of the larger ones have come to come a cropper recently before the corona, because I think essentially too many tables and too high rents and things like that. And if you're not stuffed full, you, you know, you're in trouble. But I also think there's been a, a, a slight separation from maybe I should just simply call it hospitality. You know, we, we know it, restaurants have food and that's very important but I've always had a sign on the back of our still room door saying 70% of the taste of the food is in the service <laughs> because you come out of a place and whether you want to go back is not whether you've had a perfect meal food wise cooking wise it's whether you've had a lovely time that's the thing the criteria that that sends you back again we had a great time you know and I think to some extent that might have got lost in the last few years all been a bit commercial you know rather than cosseting customers and being more intimate with them so interesting I think I think there's so much in what you say yeah that's that's such an interesting point I haven't really I haven't heard talked about um, too much before and in terms of when things do start to open which is likely to be really soon what do you think things are going to look like well I've said for one that if we anyone has to wear masks we're not opening because it's not a hospital, it's a restaurant. Jeremy King said um, a few weeks ago that food was the catalyst and it wasn't the, you know, I've just mentioned it, it was about so much else. And I think that if we have to have the kind of physical barriers that make people feel unrelaxed, feel that they're not in the right mess here, whatever, then there's no point in doing it. It's one thing having a perspex screen around the reception counter you know that's fine I haven't got any problem with that but I haven't got any problem with tables being a bit further apart apart from the fact that we all know you need a certain number of customers in any building to make it work but I think that if the preventative measures became so in your face quite literally (laughs) that it stopped you relaxing and enjoying then I don't see any point in doing it yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I mean, I get the feeling as though it's going to be more important than ever for hospitality businesses to get things right when they reopen just to yeah. 
survive I think everyone's got to really up their game haven't they I think that's absolutely right and you know in all respects one of the things that I have learned listening to people there's a company I wish I could remember the name but they managed crowd control at Olymp when we had the Olympics which we went to and it was so amazing because one of the things that they knew about and know about is bottlenecks and how people can panic and it can cause chaos and there was one point where you were leaving in the evening and getting towards the station and there was a girl wonderful girl singing and immediately it calmed everyone and people started singing as well and people relaxed etc etc and one of their messages, which I heard recently, because they've been part and parcel of, of the advisory thing for the government, is that you must let customers know what you're doing. So funny enough, our website, which I hope to go live at the end of this week, I've just asked our website builder to put another panel on saying exactly what we're doing about the security and to make sure everyone is safe. Because the more you tell people what it is you're doing, the better. And I think simple things which I hope have now been assimilated into the, the population at large, about washing your hands. I, I've always thought that health and safety in restaurants was, to some extent, ridiculous, because all you need is one young, I'm going to say young because it's mostly young, and I'm going to say male because it's mostly male, one young male chef to go to the loo and not wash his hands afterwards, and all hell can lo get loose. But there's nobody in the lavatory saying, do not leave this room until you've washed your hands. And I think those basic things about hygiene, about washing your hands, the fact that I, all restaurants will now have sanitizers, I think it's a great idea anyway. I went on a cruise a few years ago and you couldn't go into any restaurant without sanitizing your hands. It's brilliant. I mean, why not anyway? It's all, you know, whether it's just a common cold or whatever, it's a really good thing. So I think we have to do go the extra mile. We have to show we're going the extra mile. We have to all employ really good personal hygiene standards. And after that, we've got to be, as usual, welcoming, give thoughtful service, be attentive, anticipate problems, cook great food, make sure the prices are not hysterically horrible. <laughs> It's difficult when everything's going up and up and up. But, you know, everything has got to be moderate. And that we've got to do everything that makes people think it's worthwhile getting outside, going to do this and to have a great time and, you know, not to feel worried about all the things that have been going on. Absolutely. And I mean, Suffolk is a really lovely holiday destination. And I think yeah. there is going to be lots more people are going to be considering where they can go over mm. the summer, aren't they? And, you know, abandoning any plans to go abroad. Yeah. And hopefully you will get lots of people visiting the area as soon as, as soon as we can move a little bit more freely and benefit from the summer trade. What are you going to be doing regarding ice creams? Yes, um, so the summer trade. Ice cream shop, we weren't necessarily going to do it, but I've always wanted an ice cream parlor or a van or something or other. I don't know why. My husband will witness that for 30 years I've been saying, I want an ice cream. <laughs> Partly because I love ice cream, but I just like the whole notion of it. Um, mm. So we've taken a lease on a little shop that's right opposite Framlingham Castle entrance, so it couldn't be in a better place. And we've painted it all in our livery, but with a very bright pink door, you know, because it's fun. And we're using marine ices. Criterion make the ice cream near Bury St. Edmunds, so it's Suffolk, 
made but they have marine ices opposite the roundhouse in london and i've always loved that ice cream because it's gelato so less dairy and a bit more of that really silky cold italian style custard you know basically rather than cream i can't stand the american style ice creams anyway so we're hoping if all goes well to open on saturday this coming Saturday, but we're waiting for a freezer, we're waiting for the screens, we're waiting for all sorts of bits and pieces. We're nearly there and that will, you know, keep us going until the restaurant to a certain extent and it'll keep a couple of staff employed. One of the wonderful things about being in Framlingham is how many young people looking for part-time work, which we've never had in Orford, which was very much a second home, holiday home place with very few teenagers in it. And we're inundated because there's Thomas Mills School and Framlingham College. They're both very good. And uh, I've never had such a good time interviewing 20-odd kids and just being amazed at how bright and enthusiastic and sharp and lovely and smiley they were it was a real tonic actually (laughs) and actually for the young people education is suffering a little bit at the moment and life has been very strange for them my daughter is 15 and she works in the local ice cream shack and it's been well not this summer or not yet but it's been in the last year or two it's been such a confidence boost for her she's learned all sorts of skills from customer service to dealing with rude people to (laughs) (laughs) not that anyone would ever be rude cash flow and and all cleaning up all of that stuff I think is a great thing so what's the local name of your ice cream shop Ruth it's called the ice cream shop Um, (laughs) we started to get very clever about we had all sorts of I mean you know all the stupid names, ice cream and, you know, all that stuff. And my niece who lives in Framingham, her daughter, who's 17, and she said, I don't know why they're bothering. Everyone calls it the ice cream shop. They'll, they'll carry on calling it the ice cream shop. And we thought, yeah, you're probably right. So although it's got a livery and it's got W&W for Watson and Walpole and a little logo thing, it's essentially it's the ice cream shop. Well, that's lovely. Something very nice about keeping it simple, isn't there? Well, exactly. I mean, you can you know, get clever about these things, but what's the point? At the end of the day, people just want to go in and have a great scoop of whatever and come out licking themselves. and It's not themselves, not themselves, sorry, <laughs> licking the ice cream. Um, and uh, so, yes, that, that's fun. I'm hoping we'll have a great summer. I mean, today couldn't be more glorious. It, it will just be a bit of icing on the cake, frankly, but it's so much easier because one in, one out, you know, you can manage the whole thing so much more easily than in a restaurant but I do love the idea of, of it I must admit I'm, I'm quite thrilled are you going to be tempted to pop down to the ice cream shop Ruth as an ice cream lover and indulge in yeah I mean it's only 15 minutes away <laughs> it's not far to go <laughs> no I'm sure I will banana is my favorite on our list we've got um the, funnily enough I did a straw poll with about 30 friends and family from all sorts of ages from about 12 up to 86 and the results were and I was quite surprised in top place salted caramel not so much a surprise that but roast pistachio very surprised and then we had coconut banana butterscotch cherry all sorts of things but strawberry nowhere to be seen not one person voted for strawberry 
interesting yeah isn't it odd really odd and so i haven't ordered it yeah we've got vanilla chocolate banana coconut raspberry ripple natural yogurt toffee with pieces coffee that's my favorite amarina cherry hazelnut that was the most requested i asked people what would you like if it wasn't on the list and the hazelnut pistachio and salted caramel and on the sorbets we've got lemon mango and passion fruit they sound oh my absolutely gosh. delicious. And looking out at the sunshine, it's <laughs> I know. And ice cream. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, if I had a cone, which combination would I go for? <laughs> <laughs> One of everything. <laughs> we, we spent almost an afternoon last week actually doing scoop sizes. I bought three different scoops and we we're trying to work out, you know, how much it would cost, what the margin was, what looked generous. And we thought it's got to look generous, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's quite fun, really. <laughs> I was just going to say fun is the word. I can hear in your voice, you know, you said this is, this is a dream that you've always wanted to have an ice cream shop. I can hear that you're finding it fun and, and therefore it will be a fun shop to go and visit and buy ice cream. So I wish you a lot of success with that, Ruth. Finally, as we draw the chat to a close, what we always like to ask our interviewees is we've all had things that we've not been able to do over the last few months and things that we would love to do if we were able to. What three things are you looking forward to, Ruth? Top of the list, being able to go out to a restaurant. (laughs) That's not a lie. I have been cooking my socks off every single, I think it's now 100 days since we stopped going out, or 101, but it's around that. Our last meal was at Pea Porridge. And I have been cooking and cooking and doing as much interesting and different. My husband's in seventh heaven. But I am bored silly because, of course, the only trouble with cooking, however good it is and however nice it is to taste, is you've lived the whole experience. You've lived the shopping, the taking out of the fridge, the doing the things with it. And I want somebody to put a plate in front of me that I've had nothing to do with. (laughs) I totally understand that. This is just wonderful. So that's number one, without question. Number two, I'd like to have things in the diary again because I haven't looked at my diary for two and a half months. I think this is almost, apart from a a dental appointment, this is the only other appointment I've had in three and a half months. So that would be nice. And obviously seeing friends and family. I've got a huge birthday coming up at the end of next month. And we had a big party planned. We were taking a house nearby because we're near the Wilderness Reserve and it's got all these wonderful houses on its estate. And they haven't been able to finish it, building it, because the builders stopped. So we can't do that. And in any case, we weren't sure what social distancing rules would be in place. But I really would like to be able to have some kind of shindig on the 26th of July. (laughs) Well, even if if you don't have the full bash, you could have two parties. One that is what you can do now and then one that was always the plan. I'm sure that would be possible. It would be good. Why not have two instead of one? Make it, turn it into a positive. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. You are obviously incredibly busy. Ice cream shops and restaurants and all the rest of it huge luck and we can't wait to hear how it goes thank you very much indeed for talking with me it's lovely thank you thank Thank you Ruth. that was great i loved hearing ruth's positive plans for her new restaurant and of course the ice cream shop too absolutely and now let's hear what ewan has to say 
Your Adventures is Chief Executive of Fortnum & Mason. Describing itself as the world's most famous corner shop, Fortnum & Mason is one of the most iconic British retailers with a long history dating back to 1707 and currently holding two royal warrants. Its rich and varied past has involved inventing Scotch egg, supplying royalty, soldiers and suffragettes, and fueling the World War I front line, to most recently running its annual Food and Drink Awards and establishing its own rooftop vegetable garden complete with beehives. Its Piccadilly shop is a true London landmark set across five floors and Ewan has presided over the opening of a number of additional branches including at St Pancras Railway Station, the Royal Exchange, London's Heathrow Airport and even a shop in Hong Kong. Ewan has been at the helm in his role as CEO since August 2012, having spent his career in retail, joining the Sainsbury's Management Trainee Scheme at the very start of his career working up to Executive Director for Food, Restaurants and Online at Suffragists before taking over the helm at Fortnum's. You inventors, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it was so pleased you could join us. Thank you ever so much. So Ewan, Fortnum and Mason has had a long and varied history, but we all know the last few months have been extraordinary. How have things been in the life of Fortnum's and in terms of your Piccadilly shop and your other branches? Well, of course, you know, in line with what happened with the government guidance, all of our stores in the UK closed down. It was interesting, actually, because as a core part of our business is food. So we had the option, potentially, to have kept our Piccadilly footholds open throughout the entire pandemic. But it became very obvious to us at the end of March that getting into central London was becoming more and more problematic. You know, the undergrounds were congested, the buses were still quite busy as the number of available buses and I think the number of available trains became less and less. So it felt quite unfair on our staff to kind of force them to come into Piccadilly to, to open the store. So we felt it was the right and proper thing to do was simply to close. So, you know, during the pandemic in the UK, really we relied very much on our website, fortnumandmason.com and our telephone sales business to continue to meet the needs of our customers here in the UK, which we did very well with. Online performance has been phenomenal. It's just been extraordinary to see the growth in online and, and domestic customers from across the UK, every part of the United Kingdom, buying their fresh meat, their, their cheesies, their hams, their salamis, as well as a fantastic array of wines, champagnes, and then of course the tea, biscuits and, and preserves, which I think we're often most famous for. And then elsewhere in the world, in Hong Kong, last November, we opened a beautiful store and restaurant on the Victoria Harbour waterside, looking back towards Central. And that has never closed during the pandemic. So Hong Kong retail and restaurants were able to continue to trade during this period, albeit to various forms of social distancing. In a way, it was quite interesting running a business that's dominated here in the UK to have learned what happened in Hong Kong because their first outbreak of COVID-19 was around about the 20th of January. So we had some experience of what was happening out there and we were able to apply some of those learnings to how we started to reopen the business here in London. But throughout that whole period, Hong Kong carried on trading and they are now, I mean, Hong Kong's been amazing. I think they've had no more than four deaths as a result of COVID-19 and 
a little more than 11 or 1,200 reported cases. So they did something quite different to um, what perhaps happened here in the UK. Yeah, quite a different picture. Mm. And what was it like shutting down the food hall then, Ewan? Mm. It was sad, really. It was quite shocking. For something to be forced upon you, it felt really rather awkward. I think perhaps tougher really in the restaurants, I think, even more so than in the store. I remember on the day before the main lockdown, when the whole store shut, there was quite very good customers in the store and and who I know very well. And and the wine bar was still open and we agreed that we're going to have a glass of wine. And it was literally an hour before the restaurants were about to close. And I think even at that moment, I was in the position of thinking, well, the restaurant's going to close tonight at 5.30. You know, it was that famous day when the Prime Minister said, look, I don't want anybody to go out to pubs or restaurants, hotels or anything. And so we made the decision straight away that we would shut by 5.30 that day. And I remember sat there thinking, gosh, we're having to do what we're told and we're closing down. But at that point, I still probably thought that the Piccadilly store would open, stay open for longer. But I think it was only 24 hours later, from memory, that we decided that the store had to close. So I think it was a deeply unsettling moment, you know, for our teams in particular, who quite naturally... People immediately worried about, you know, when they're going to come back to work, would we ever open again? Quite a scary thing, really, a whole lockdown of a country. You know, for an awful lot of people, it's bred, you know, deep uncertainty. And I think, well, we can talk more about how we try to allay that uncertainty. But, you know, that very initial moment, it was, it was quite a shocking situation to be in. Yeah. Have you closed before? What about during the wars? Did the business remain open? According to our records, the business never really closed. Ironically, I think I, was, I said, oh, this is the first time in our history that we have closed. Actually, I don't know if that's entirely true, because I think two years ago, we had a major power failure here that knocked us out for 24 hours. So we, we, we've had, even in recent history, we've had a day when, when we actually closed. Of course, that just felt slightly different, really, because it was the drama of a power failure, and it was about getting a generator in big enough to... Because not only did we lose the main power to the supply, to the shop, we lost the generator power. So it was a very unusual set of circumstances. So no, really, in, in, in true closure terms, this was the first time in 313 years that Fortnum's wasn't able to perform its services from the physical store. But of course, unlike in the war period, where trade was disrupted, but was never completely abandoned, we have .com. 18% of our business traditionally is through FortnumMason.com. And uh, so we already had quite a healthy online business, but then to suddenly see the demand for online shopping just grow exponentially was very exciting. And credit to the team for their ability to, to turn their attention to getting the volume of supplies in place. And of course, credit to the depot team. Because of course, just because, you know, we talk about shop shutting, depots still kept going and they had to have social distancing rules in place and they had to adjust their modus operandi very, very fast. So big tribute to, to that team who adjusted beautifully in that period. And um, Touchwood maintained a very, very healthy depot. I mean, I think we had no cases of, no formal cases that we know of, of, of COVID-19 infections. And our absentee levels were more or less normal. So good on them for, for being able to demonstrate that if you do act safely and if you do act in a considered way, you can continue to run, run a business in a safe fashion. And you were able to support your suppliers then through those increased online orders, I guess, by keeping their orders going and, and the whole supply chain 
had momentum? Yeah, I think the, the good thing there is that a large part of our business in tea and biscuits and jams and, and wines, of course, they've all got a much longer shelf life. So between what stock we had in our system, what stock we had on in the shop floors, in the physical stores, that we were able to upload that stock from, from the different outlets that we run and own to transfer that stock back to the distribution centre. Together with what stock suppliers had, um, we were able to keep availability pretty good. On the fresh food side, it's a smaller part of our online business, but our fresh food suppliers, absolutely, they, they were able to be very adaptable and very uh, nimble in their approach. But then, of course, a number of those suppliers might have had large restaurant businesses to deliver to, and of course, the restaurant business disappeared. So suddenly, some of those cheesemakers and, and, uh, and the like would have had a a much bigger business supplying restaurants, but they were they, so they were able to focus their attention to supplying key independent stores like like Fortnum's during during the period. So they they too responded very very well. And your customer base for your online online business, I imagine it's quite international. You get must get orders from all over the world. Well, we do, and you know, in the normal course of events, we deliver to over one hundred and twenty six countries in the world. Wow. Yeah, but our online business is dominated though by domestic consumer, and that domestic consumer demand just went up to, you know, ninety percent of everything bought was bought from an IP address here in the United Kingdom. It's not to say, of course, that people weren't sending gifts around the world, and you know, you saw really because because we get to see gift messages, you know, you can get a real sense of what's a gift, what's not a gift. And then even what type of gifts. So there was an awful lot of parcels going out to friends and relatives around the world just as a care package, really, just as a, a token of someone's affection or love that, uh, you know, wasn't so much about birthdays or anniversaries. I mean, I think there's plenty of that business too, but we definitely saw a really healthy appetite for people just sending very, very lovely, caring messages, looking out for people. And I guess the thing that motivated me as well is seeing the amount of, you know, fresh meat sold online because that demonstrated less of a gift business much more of a you know much more of a people thought oh my goodness I can get access to a really fabulous river beef for Sunday lunch and actually you know it was easier to buy that from Fortnum's than it was to perhaps go to their local supermarket and certainly quality quite different and one of my great mates Anya Highmarsh you know the handbag designer and Anya did such a lot of fantastic work during lockdown around raising money for Royal Marsden and so on. Anyway, I sent Anya a little gift as a well done Anya for doing all this fundraising. And I sent her a three river beef, some horseradish and a bottle of Merlin to arrive on a Saturday, I think it was, for Sunday lunch. Anyway, Anya was so taken by this idea that this creative box, wasn't even a hamper, just a box arrived with this meat and horseradish and wine that she immediately went online and ordered six sets of what I sent her to send out to her friends. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> and was that Mr. Hannan's beef? This was Pete Hannan's, yes. Well, you see, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I, I wrote a piece about amazing suppliers from Ireland at yes. the start of this and, you know, who to support. And I was looking up where to get them over in mainland GB. And you're the place to come, aren't you? <laughs> we certainly are, yeah. No, we've had a... Must be seven, almost eight years partnership with Peter. I mean, in the very early days, and still pretty much true today, we had a, a, an exclusive agreement in London for Portland's, for retail, and our restaurants. And then he, with Mark Hicks and his restaurants, 
So we were the only sort of two brands, businesses, if you like, who could sell you just meat. And actually, I think now, because Mark's business has sort of gone under, sadly, so I think he's teaming up with Soren at number one Lombard. So I think you're going to see Pete Hammond's meat and with Mark Hicks and, and Soren at num- number one Lombard. So that's exciting. And they say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Do you think that Sunday lunchbox idea is going to carry on as a thing? Oh, definitely. I think, I think, I mean, we've got, we're selling our our sort of hottest new line is the ultimate provisions box, you know, with cheeses and salmons and piccalilli. Delicious. Scotch egg and so on. And I think that that, that's selling. So I think these ideas of cleverly themed boxes and i use the word boxes rather than the hamper because i think the hamper is very symbolic for different reasons but because once you've got a few hampers you don't keep needing more and more wicker (laughs) so yeah a a joyful box of treats is is just as important as as receiving the hamper so yeah totally i think i think all of these um and we were already seeing a bit of that you know before covid19 we were doing like for example christmas time we were doing the whole sort of christmas lunchbox and had the turkey and I had the trimmings and I had all the bits and I think there's there's an increasing demand not for it all to be fully cooked or to have the idea of quantities I think people still get a bit scared of well if I'm cooking for four how many potatoes do I really need actually it's quite simple isn't it how many potatoes might you eat times the number of people is the answer but that paralyzes people number things I still get asked how many potatoes should you allow per person Totally. Quite <laughs> a simple answer, really, but of course it does perplex people, doesn't it? So absolutely, yeah, that's uh, a great sorry. idea. So there was trends like that before, but I think the wine, the wine has been amazing. Our wine business has transformed, and I think that's perhaps giving. I think partly because we had availability of wine, we had availability of delivery slots, and actually the quality of our wine and the price point of our wines are surprising. I mean, people are surprised that you can buy a bottle of wine for under ten pounds at Fortin's, you know. And everything, you know, from £10 to £10,000. And so I think people thought, ah, that's quite interesting. And now, of course, we've broken some habits. People have started to realise, actually, our domain opt, you know, our, our Cote de Provence made by domain opt for £19.50 a bottle is remarkable wine. And actually, relative to the price of the first wine I bought, it's a really good price. And you can have it delivered and the system works. And I think that means that a lot of people will think, hmm, actually, I can go to Fortnum's and I know I can order online. And I know that, you know, it's not going to be a lugging a great case of wine from the shop at Piccadilly. And I think, I anticipate that we'll see continued business in, 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 in categories like wines going forward. That's really interesting. Yes, definitely. Our shopping habits are changing and there will be some habits that will we've developed that will stick. Now, as we're recording this, we now have a bit more certainty with the open, reopening of hospitality businesses yeah. and we are anticipating they will reopen imminently. So what will a visit to Fortnum and Mason look like over the next few weeks and, and beyond? Well, it's, it's already joyful, even just coming into the retail. Uh, I didn't say that, but actually it's not me who's saying that, it's the customers who are saying it. Just look at social media. People have been reassured, if you like, by the, the standards of operation and the cleanliness and the, the cleverness of information. You know, we've, we've done things in our way. It's a bit more quirky and a bit more interesting. We've also got, I think, some tremendous staff on the floor, teams on the floor who are engaging and helping people and supporting people on that first sort of foray back into the shop. So 
you know, largely the retail experience is beautiful. In fact, I would say that we're not busy enough yet, if that makes sense. I mean, and I don't just mean that commercially. I mean, as in that, you know, we're getting, you know, 100 people an hour or something coming through the store. Well, actually, it's almost like personal shopping at Fulton's at the moment with such few people in such a, a large building. So it is the most joy. If you don't like shopping, <laughs> traditionally, or you don't like going to big shops, <laughs> this is a good moment to do it. Trust me, it's really, really good. Obviously, we hope it's going to get this. And I think restaurants will be a key part of that. So, you know, we reopen on the 4th of July, two of our key restaurants, 45 German Street, which is the, the restaurant at the back of the building that has direct street access, and then the Diamond Jubilee Tea Salon up on the fourth floor. And then during the course of uh, we commencing the 6th of July, all of the other restaurants within the building will, will start to reopen. So one metre distancing rules, as you know, from when restaurants reopen will be more helpful, will be more convivial, I suppose, to the idea that you can go to a restaurant and enjoy the experience on a practical basis. So, you know, watch this space, but it's going to need so much more than just, oh, restaurants are open. I think that seeing galleries reopen, seeing the cultural institutions reopen. And sadly, you know, there's no site yet that in the West End of London that theatres are reopening just yet. But, you know, I think the tapestry of, of shopping in the West End of London is, is, yes, good shops, but it's about all the other things that go with it that make, give people a reason to visit the West End to do their shopping. Or indeed, frankly, you know, if you work in the West End, you know, I think part of the joy of perhaps working in the West End is is being in and around the atmosphere of all of those other cultural attachments. And if they are not there, you know, why would people rush back to their offices if they can work successfully remotely from home? So I think it's going to be a, a long, slow build in the West End. But if you make the effort, we're going to welcome you very much. The great smile and the restaurants will definitely be a very welcome addition. I know myself, Ewan, as a business owner, forecasting is always a difficult art at the best of times. I always feel like it's just, you're trying to peer into the unknown, aren't you? I imagine at this time where you have you know, maybe less international footfall through the store, and we don't know how long that will go on for, but actually there's less opportunity for shoppers and diners currently in London because some things just haven't, sadly some won't reopen yeah, yeah. how does that feel for you are you feeling like you literally just have to suck it and see or are you you feeling confident and buoyant yeah i am actually i mean the, the international numbers are quite straightforward you know there will be no international traffic until i think november december at the earliest so you can pretty much predict i think what's going to happen there so then you're starting to look at the differential between local local customers and domestic tourism and domestic tourism is really important to London. And I think people forget that, that London benefits enormously from people coming from, you know, from Cardiff, from Edinburgh, from, you know, Manchester, you know, all over. And they, and they come and spend the weekends or they have extended, you know, half-term holidays with their families, etc. So that domestic tourism is going to be hard to predict. You know, I'm a, a big advocate that the summer should be all about staycations. You know, whether you can fly or not, I think it's your corporate duty almost, your citizenship duty to spend your money in the UK and help you know, support businesses, help generate tax revenues for the Treasury to help pay for all of what's gone on. So, however, 
I can see that working really well with people leaving cities, going to the countryside, going to the beaches, whether people will feel like, oh, this is a good opportunity to get a really good hotel deal and head to London and kind of like, and why? Yes, shops. Yes, galleries, thankfully, but no theatres. And I think that's going to be, be quite challenging. So, yeah, forecasting is, is a dilemma. But I'm not so worried, you know, in truth, in this summer period, the real drama for forecasting is Christmas. You know, the vast majority of our sales occur in that last quarter of the calendar year and trying to get a handle on what we think the true customer demand at Christmas time is one that's preoccupying us all night and day just at the moment. But as weeks go by and, and we start to see how people behave, it will give us a sense and we'll make a judgment. Absolutely. So I said to my team the other day, the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. <laughs> You're so Always. right. Always. <laughs> You're so right. Well, I think there's going to be lots of people like me who are desperate to get up to London from the country and have a haircut and <laughs> do some shopping and all the things that I haven't been able to do over the last few months. So uh, let's hope you have a great response to... Uh, well, I had some friends text me yesterday who live in Wales who said, we're coming up on Thursday, Friday to the shop and can you book us into one of your restaurants? And I said, no, we're not open until Saturday. And then came back and said, right, we're changing our mind. We're coming out on Saturday. So, you know, that's perhaps a really good indication of how people are feeling, which is that actually we want to get to London. We want to get to the favourite shops. And, and actually, if we're going to go to the trouble of doing that, then we're going to make sure that we go out and eat in the one or two restaurants. And Actually, to that earlier question, sadly, there will be some restaurants in particular who won't reopen. And therefore, I think brands like Fortnum's and other quality operators, you know, in the neighbourhood here, you know, whether it's the Brits or whether it's the Wolseley, will all probably do okay, if not quite well. Because as other smaller businesses, perhaps, or, or they, they don't reopen, then the demand curve will be different. And therefore, maybe if the traffic is there, then people will end up coming into sort of some of the brands like, like ourselves. And brands that people can trust as well. I think there's going to be a massive moment here where consumers are going to want to trust people who they know will have the right procedures in place, who will have been very thoughtful in the way that they've set up their business and laid out their business. And obviously, Fortnum and Mason should be one of those places. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting that you have started to really cement a reputation for that with the retail opening. And that, that can give customers confidence, can't it? It's not just, you know, open the doors and see what can happen. They can see what you're already putting in place. Yeah. And that was part of the reason why I didn't want to just reopen the food hall in line with general retail on June 15th. You know, we decided to open on May the 21st because it made a clear statement to the London retail sector that we made the judgment that we could operate safely. And we did. And uh, there was a, quite a, an evocative image that appeared in the Times the day after we opened with our staff all in their beautiful red coats and their masks and their face masks. And it was sort of a, you could read it in two ways. It was almost a, a slightly sort of quite an aggressive look in a way, but it was also a sign of defence and strength and hygiene. And, and so I, I certainly took the latter interpretation and most people did actually and say, wow, it was really reassuring to think that Fortnum and Mason, this great bastion of a, of a brand over 313 years, had made the decision that it was right and proper to open and safe to do so. And I think that has given a lot of customers reassurance. And leading from the front, you and you personally, it's such an unprecedented, strange, 
unplanned time to sort of have to make decisions and decide we're going to do this and we're going to do that and this is who we are I guess that's been a whole new not well I'm sure it has been challenging but a, a way of, of stretching yourself and finding out you know what can be done and putting your stamp on things Look, I'm blessed by the most extraordinary team. I mean, we have a terrific team at Fordham. So I think the energy of our teams, and that's been a really important aspect, really, of the, the lockdown period, is the constant communication, the constant updates, the, the wellness programmes we've run, the mental health programmes we've run, the, the fitness programmes we've run, the, all the, the good stuff remotely to make sure that people knew that we, we care and we genuinely care. And it wasn't just words, but it's real actions. And I think that that has been, well, a natural thing to do, actually, for us, but a good thing to have done. And I think that the benefit of having done that means that the teams across Fordham's are, are really keen to get back and to contribute. And their attitude is one of absolute positivity. We've also never been in the position where we've had to say to people, you must. We've always been lucky at saying, who would like to? Who feels ready? Who feels that they're in a positive frame of mind to want to come back and make a contribution? And somehow that's just worked beautifully. And I think as the business sort of rebuilds, then, then people who perhaps were the most nervous six weeks ago will just naturally feel we can come with you now and, and we'll, we'll join up when, when we're fully open. And that's been a really good, really good experience. And, and I, I'm told from all the survey stuff we do, the teams and the company have been feeling really positive about that. Well, congratulations on steering the ship successfully through adversity. <laughs> Nobody ever expected to have to do this, did they? No, <laughs> not at all. Not Tell at us all. about you personally, Ewan. What, what are the three things that you're looking forward to yourself when you're able to do some things that you perhaps haven't been able to do for a while? I'm guessing you haven't had much rest recently. That might be one thing. <laughs> Yeah, there, was a, there was something about, do people feel the need that, that, to have a holiday? Well, the answer is yes, I do. <laughs> Just because you've not been confined to the, you know, the conventions of the workplace in the normal way, it doesn't mean to say that it hasn't perhaps been more taxing than even normal trading because of the weight of responsibility, but also the sheer pace of change and the pace of decision-making. So I think looking forward to having a little downtime in the highlands of Scotland, Scotland is reopened, which I think it will be by the time I do that. So all things being well. So that's exciting. Going out to the restaurant. I am eating in 45 German Street on the first day we opened. So <laughs> I managed to get a reservation as it's now sold out on, on the first day. So that's 195 covers on day oh, one. Oh, wow. That's so if any, any restaurateur ever tells you, oh, there's no demand. Well, I'm afraid there is a bit of demand going on somewhere. Now, will it maintain at that level? Goodness only knows. But, you know, there's, certainly there's a, a hiatus. And then I think the other thing is just having friends to your home. You know, so there's the sort of formality of a restaurant and the informality of home entertaining. You know, I love to cook. I love to, I love to have people around. And not being able to do that for so long has been... So quite three quite simple things, really, that we mustn't take for granted ever again. Because I think quite right. It's... Nobody of our generation or generations around us ever thought that we would be... I grew up as a kid thinking, would we ever be at the tail end of a nuclear bomb that had gone off somewhere else in the world? You know, and we, were, we were upstream and we had to behave differently. And you know, I, So that's what I always thought that one day I'd get caught up in. And then thankfully that all seemed to dissipate a bit, didn't it, really, with the Cold War and all that sort of stuff. And 
and then we have this new emerging threat. Fascinating, isn't it? If you, I'm sure you've watched some of the stuff like Bill Gates, you know, predicting this. You know, it's amazing that there were some pretty eminent people <laughs> able to have said that what happened was only a matter of time. But I don't think any of us were truly prepared for it. So there we go. Let's, let's hope that, that our decision makers know what they're doing and that we are unlocking in a, in a sensible, safe way. And that as we get back, this can be a lasting period of, of getting back to whatever the new normal really is. Quite right. Absolutely. And we wish you every success over the coming weeks Thank and you. months. Thank you everything you've got going on and we're immensely grateful to you for taking the time to speak to us today so thank you very much indeed pleasure lovely to chat that was so interesting and now jules what industry news have you come across this week waitrose is planning to open a third customer fulfillment center in london in a continued push to expand its online presence in the capital Waitrose said the centre could be up and running as early as December this year and delivery slots in the capital will be four times higher than at the start of the year once the centre is operational. Supermarkets have cut down on price promotions heavily to stop panic buying, but with availability on the shelves back to normal, their promotion levels are still down 17% on average. The result of this has been a sharp increase in inflation to 4.1%. At the start of the pandemic, there was ample justification for stopping price promotions as they encouraged panic-stricken shoppers to stockpile. To be fair, promotion levels at Sainsbury's have not only returned to pre-lockdown levels, they're actually up by 13%. But for rivals, that's not the case. And finally, research commissioned by The Grocer magazine shows that the coronavirus has driven interest in healthy snacking, which is, of course, good news for Moorish hummus. Taste is king in all areas of grocery and snacking is no different. More than half of respondents in the survey named taste as the most important factor when choosing a snack. Back in the 90s, a low fat content was considered the prime indicator of health. Today, only 9% of respondents consider that the most important factor in a healthy snack. Instead, the public health messaging around sugar seems to have cut through as low in sugar, top the list of healthy attributes people are looking for. Now, I can't say too much about this at the moment, Charlotte, as it's currently top secret, but watch this space for an update on a super exciting new Moorish product that fits the bill of healthy snacking that we've just discussed, and that'll be launching in Sainsbury's this September. Wow, well, that is exciting news. And thank you, Jules. They're great insights as always. So on to our listener questions for this week. What do people want to know? Well, I have to say you choose the questions from the questions that we receive. I don't, but they often happen to be questions on things that I would really like to know the answer to. And my husband was saying the same the other day. We have learned a lot from you, Charlotte. So in fact, he was talking about olive oil and the difference between Spanish and Italian. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Good. Is informing people. So this week we have been asked about chef's knives and I would love to get a new set of knives. We've had a question from a listener who has realised their knives are not up to the job after all the cooking in lockdown. What would you recommend they buy? Well, that's really interesting. I would say that knives are probably the most important pieces of equipment to have in the kitchen. And if you're going to invest in it, 
anything, then good knives are so worthwhile. Now, when I say good knives, I mean something that is really, really effective, does the job really well, and is a pleasure to use. And what a lot of people don't realize is that a good knife doesn't have to cost a lot of money. So, and I say this because in normal times, I teach cookery classes and one of my most regular classes is a knife skills class. So that's something I'm kind of doing virtually at the moment with people in their homes. But I get a lot of people coming to that class saying, I don't know where to start. My knives are awful. I'm having real trouble cutting. I've just got, you know, really simple knives. But do I need to spend hundreds of pounds on a knife? The answer is no. What I would recommend is actually buying just a couple of knives to get started. I tend to advise people to steer clear of buying maybe a knife block, for example, with a set, because quite often the sets do not contain knives that are all that useful. So you tend to get one or two that you might use regularly, and the others tend to be a little bit more specialist and they often stay in the block. So I would probably buy a filleting knife and a chef's knife or a chopping knife to get started. So just two and a sharpener. And to look for knives, I would really strongly recommend going to a catering shop that's open to trade in public. They have a brilliant selection of knives, including the really top end knives that you'll see in lots of shops or on the TV, but they are much more competitively priced. So I would strongly advise against going to maybe a department store sort of designery shop for knives because they tend not to be the best knives. So go to a catering shop and you can get really amazing quality knives for really sensible prices. So to get something good, you're probably looking at spending 30 or 40 pounds on a knife as opposed to hundreds. So that would be where I'd start. I get something with a steel blade that you can sharpen and getting a a sharpening steel as well, because what a lot of people don't know is you need to sharpen your knives every time you use them. So don't just put them in the drawer and get them out for a sharpen at Christmas. (laughs) They really do need to be maintained. And this will take just a few seconds every time you use it and they will keep your knives in tip-top condition. So I'd recommend going to a catering supplier. You can give them a try there, see how they feel, give them a go, make sure they feel comfortable and pick up a couple to get started. And then you can always expand your range as you go along. And if you want different knives for a different task, you don't necessarily need to buy a big set at once. I had to do that when I went to do my chef training, I had to do, buy about 13 different knives at once as part of my set. And, you know, it's a huge investment. So buy one or two and build them up. But I would definitely recommend going for something that is designed for function rather than form. What you also need to bear in mind as well, one final point is that knives should never go in the dishwasher. So they always need to be hand washed. Mainly this causes problems with the handles. They can either crack and break, but I mean, I'm a big fan of shoving everything in the dishwasher and getting on with my day, but knives really do need to be washed by hand. So that's something to bear in mind as well. Brilliant. How long would a knife last? So I'm all about sort of cost per use. So 30 or 40 pounds, it's not an insignificant amount, but if it lasted me 10 years, then that's okay. What do you think is a reasonable lifetime for a knife? If you're going to make that investment, what should you expect to get back in terms of the life length? I mean, I have no affiliations with any brands, but I think, you know, for the 30, 40 pound mark, you're looking at something like a Victorinox knife, for example. They make the Swiss army knives and, you know, you can easily get 20, 30 years 
service out of one of those. They really are built to last. I have some Victorian Knox knives. I have some German knives, some Wusthof and Spillings, for example. And, you know, I'm expecting them to last my lifetime. And they were about 50, 60 pounds a knife. So yeah, when you buy a good a good knife like that, you are entitled to expect, you know, a good 20 years service. It's the dishwashing that kills it, basically. Interesting that you've done a mix and match of different knives from different places to have mm-hmm. the exact set of knives that you need. That is definitely something that will take a little bit of research, but sounds like it's worth doing. Very much so. So the second question we have is advice on making salads more interesting. So we are in summer now, and that's normally when us Brits eat more salad. But in terms of dressings, I make a honey and mustard dressing. And that's about as far as my repertoire goes. It's really nice. But what else can you recommend to make salads more interesting and any great salad dressing recipes that you can share? Well, first of all, I recommend thinking about the ingredients you're using and possibly treating them separately. So, for example, I would personally never combine something like lettuce, tomatoes, cucumber. I would always do them separately and never, never mix them. Lettuce, if I'm using in a salad, I tend to serve it on its own as a green salad. And then any other components I would serve separately. I really recommend not buying salad dressings. They tend to taste a bit strange compared to the real thing. And they've got sorted emulsifiers in to help them bind. So I would encourage you to think about homemade dressings wherever, wherever possible. In terms of something really, really simple, I would just put some good olive oil on and a pinch of salt. Salad dressings need some salt. You may not realize that, but it really does give it a lift. So something as simple as a really good quality olive oil, like I was speaking about last week, and a pinch of sea salt, and that will give your salad a real lift. Now, if you're dressing something like um, leaves or a lettuce, what you want to do is just to make sure that the salad dressing is actually tossed through the lettuce. And you want to make sure it's lightly glistening. So I wouldn't just sort of pour it on top. I put a drizzle on or a little spoon and then toss it through using my hands or some utensils and then make sure it's ever so lightly glistening and then serve that. And that's something to do at the very last minute. I tend to make salad dressings from scratch and put them in jars and then I keep them at ambient temperature because obviously the oil doesn't doesn't chill very well. So a nice ratio is something like one part vinegar, three parts of oil. And I tend to make French dressing I really, really like. It tends to have um, two tablespoons of white wine vinegar, a good quality one, six tablespoons of olive oil, maybe a crushed clove of garlic, what half to one teaspoon of Dijon mustard and loads and loads of parsley and blend that together. That's really, really nice. It's with a bit of salt gives it such a lift. And I think, you know, simple, good quality ingredients make all the difference here. Sounds absolutely delicious. And anything we can do in my house to make salad more interesting for children and for us is really useful. So thank you. And thank you again to all of our fabulous guests. As this is the penultimate episode, we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, about what you have particularly enjoyed and what you might like to see more of or hear more of, I guess, if we do a second series. There'll be more news on this soon. So that's all for now. We look forward to talking to you again next week when we will have an incredible lineup for you for the final episode of series one. And we'd just like to finish by saying thanks for listening, folks. 
We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about food and drink during the pandemic, drop us an email. We're on hello at pandemic-pantry.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pandemic Pantry Podcast. And if you'd like to enter our weekly competition to win a case of delicious Moorish dips or one of our other great giveaways, just head to our website and look in the competition section. The website address once more is www.pandemic-pantry.co.uk and we'll see you next week.